Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest edition of Airing It Out, Files from Leahy's Broadcast Booth. John Leahy with you. Thanks so much for being with us here on the podcast. I uh, truly appreciate it. I'd like to thank my guest from uh, last week, uh, Bridget Pru. Uh, Bridget, uh, uh, a rising star in the broadcasting industry, and she was uh, gracious enough to join us last week. If you'd like to listen to that episode or any other episode that we've done here on the podcast, please feel free to go over to LeahyStorytelling.com. That's L-E-A-H-Y Storytelling.com. You can check out any of the past episodes we've done. You can also leave a review of any particular episode from zero to five stars or a written uh, comment. You can also uh, leave a voice message. There's a purple microphone in the bottom right-hand corner of each page. There's also a blog up there as well and uh, some videos. So uh, a lot of uh, cool stuff on the website, and uh, we hope you can take advantage of that. We're going to talk some baseball this week uh, with uh, us being in the dead of winter here. Always great to talk some baseball, and always great to talk to my next guest. Uh, he is uh, a man that I worked with in Lowell for several years. He was the former assistant general manager of the Lowell Spinners, and he's moved on to a new position, which we'll talk about shortly. Joining me, my great friend, Sean Smith. Sean, it's so great to have you at Thanks for taking some time today. You know, John, it's great to hear your voice. I've missed you, man. You know, baseball is not the same without us working together. And it's an honor. You know, you're one of the best in the business, certainly one of the best I've ever worked with. And a New England legend, whether it's baseball or hockey, and I'm honored to be part of it. Sean, thank you for the kind words. I truly appreciate it. And I can say with uh, full honesty that uh, working with you in that time in Lowell was one of the best times in my life. And uh, I really want to talk about uh, the situation in Lowell and, and uh, some memories and stories from our time together. And I thought we'd just start, Sean, with maybe a little background on yourself. I know you were uh, in Lowell for 15 years. You had two stints there. But, uh, you know, before you even got to Lowell, uh, you were very much interested in sports, right? You were at Purdue and you helped the football team and you also volunteered uh, in athletics at Syracuse. So it's been a part of your life for a long time, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, I was fortunate that I went to uh, high school in Charlotte, North Carolina. I was fortunate enough to be part of a school that uh, really we played for state championships in basketball every year. We won the state championship in baseball my senior year and I actually walked on the baseball team at Purdue and uh, did my share of keeping the bench nice and warm. <laughs> and um, after I got done playing ball and I realized quickly that I'm not going to be a professional baseball player, I started to help the the football team at Purdue. I was an academic tutor there, and yeah. uh, it was great to be able to help those guys out on their journey because it's tough to balance your academics and athletics as well as your transitions in life uh, and college. Then when I went to Syracuse for grad school, I did get a chance to work in the athletic department for Larry Kimball and Sue Cornelius. Sue is still the, um, I think her title now, I think she's the vice president of communications. She was a sports information director for a long time. Yeah. And I'll tell you, not a day goes by in my professional life that I don't apply something that Larry and Stu taught me. That's how impactful that they've been on my career. And, uh, you know, it's, this is all about relationships. This business is all about relationships. And Larry Kimball introduced me to someone in the Houston Astros organization, the late Leo Pickney from Auburn, New York. And I got the opportunity back in 93 to work in the Astros organization. I yeah. never had any intention on working in sports. Uh, my intention was to work in television, which is why I went to Syracuse. And it was to work on the management side of TV. I fell in love with doing things and running the business behind the scenes and uh, creating a path towards that. And funny thing happens along the way. I get mixed up in a, a, a thing that's been a huge part of my life, especially with my dad. And that's the game of baseball. And here we are a million years later. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Now, you know, you mentioned Syracuse, and I, there's, there's a lot of people that go there for broadcasting. Uh, they have the uh, the great school out there for communications, and, uh, you know, so many great uh, broadcasters have come out of there, and so it, it, it's, it is. It's very interesting that you wound up going there, and, and now you wind up in the in the path that you that you're in. Yeah, you know, I'm a Boilermaker at heart. I went to Purdue, and I have to brag and say right now we're number one in the country in basketball. I there you go. have to embrace embrace that because it doesn't happen that often. Um, but uh, I bleed gold and black, but I wear orange and blue. And what I mean in the difference there is, you know, the professional network from the Newhouse School is very, very thick. And there's a lot of us that come across each other in this industry through a variety of different capacities. And we feel it's our duty and responsibility to take care of one another and look out for each other. You know, um, Jason Benetti. Uh, had his stint in Syracuse. You know, Benetti's the White Sox broadcaster. Um, there's a great deal of people both in front of the camera, behind the camera, and in, in the administrative side of sports that are doing some amazing things. And uh, it's great to be able to have that professional connection and, and understanding. Absolutely. And we, we should also touch on your history with the NBA, Sean. Uh, you were at the NBA for uh, just about a decade. Uh, tell us about your experience there and how that got started. Yeah, so um, I had the opportunity to go work for the late David Stern for about nine years, and I worked in two different departments. First of all, I was in the what's called the team marketing and business operations division. It's the business consulting division where we would help NBA, WNBA, and now what's called the NBA Gatorade League, the Meyer League system, um, help them with their business, help them with sponsorship and ticket sales and um, community relations and all sorts of facets, uh, as everyone has come to know and love in, in dealing with the spinners. Um, that's a big part of the business, and certainly the Red Sox always have those on display as well as one of the best in the business in all of sports. Uh, and then um, part of my time there was spent running the business side of the minor league system. I was the vice president, chief marketing officer of business development for what is now the NBA Gatorade League. So handling our digital initiatives, our broadcast and streaming initiatives, um, working with our colleagues on uh, different sponsorship initiatives and worked very closely with basketball operations, referee operations, and security. So I always joke that I had the liberal arts degree of the NBA. <laughs> and um, when David Stern retired, uh, you know, he was uh, something that someone that was important in my life and a big reference in my life, quite honestly. And I had a, a, a quiet personal relationship off on the side with him. I, I, I didn't approach it to something that I bragged about. I just kind of kept that close to close to the vest with me and David and then losing him, um, I, I, I know a lot of people felt lost when, when, when David passed away suddenly, but uh, and he was one of the more recognizable business icons on the planet. And uh, Adam Silver, who's leading the NBA now, you know, they're in great hands with what Adam's been able to do growing the game globally. Um, but it was an honor to be able to work with David Stern. Great stuff, Sean. Well, uh, I thought we'd talk primarily today about the Lowell Spinners because that is uh, how we are connected. Uh, we were there. Uh, I know you and I worked together for nine years, and uh, you were with the Spinners for 15 years over two different uh, periods of time. But uh, let me let me start, Sean, by talking about, uh, before we get into the stories and memories, let's talk about uh, the disillusion of the franchise. What do, what do you see as uh, the impact on, the, t the city of Lowell and the void it left in Lowell when uh, it ultimately um, was a fact that the spinners weren't coming back? Well, I think there's a few different ways to categorize this. Um, but I'm going to save the biggest one for last. So economically, you know, the spinners organization puts about three to three and a half million dollars back into the community every year. So whether it's hotels, transportation companies, vendors, um, you know, restaurants, et cetera, that we are able to cycle money to and through the community. 
So there's certainly an economic impact there. And keep in mind, the spinners were short season. So it started yeah. in the middle of June and then ended essentially first week of September. So we were able to dovetail, dovetail in and out of uh, UMass Lowell. So as you know, UMass Lowell, D1 and all their sports have been for quite some time. So we were able to help make it a year-round sports experience in, yep. in the greater Lowell Merrimack Valley area. So the economic impact is certainly one that is tough to replace. Um, that goes without saying. Uh, and then I think the second one is just what it means from a tourism standpoint for the greater Merrimack Valley, you know, to be associated with the Boston Red Sox organization and to have it be such a great world-class venue and create great memories uh, for fans is a big selling point for the community. And then the third one, and I think is most important, I think is the emotional uh, situation. You know, the spinners had, had been around for a quarter of a century and have meant so many things to so many people in so many different iterations. And, you know, when I would, when, when I'd go to season ticket holders wakes or their funerals to see people with spinners hats on their caskets, to see them with spinners balls in their caskets, to read about this in their obituaries, like, you know, you may look at it and say, oh, it's baseball, but it's so much more than that. It's about the fans really being the 10th man there and sharing a great night out and cheering for guys who the vast majority will never make it. You know, 5.5 guys per year eventually make the big leagues coming right. out of Lowell, right. um, which sounds impressive, right? But when we have over 60, in some cases, 70 guys that cycle through the roster, it's a small percentage. Um so it, it goes way beyond cheering for the next major leaguer. It's cheering for your community, cheering for yourself and your role in your community and celebrating all the people on the concourse or on the on-field ceremonies that take place throughout there. It, it's, it, you know, baseball is what brings people there, but each other is what keeps people coming back. And the emotional connection and the emotional sense of loss is something that's very, very difficult to replace. Absolutely. And we should also talk about uh, those, particularly in politics, that rallied to save the ball club, right? This, this went all the way to yeah, Washington, yeah. right? Sure, sure, sure. You know, Lori Trahan, Congresswoman Lori Trahan, who just was sworn into her second term. You know, Lori's a rock star um, on so many different levels. But Lori is a threat when she was in her freshman term, a freshman congresswoman, to take this issue on behalf of all of minor league baseball and the contraction and the teams removed from minor league baseball as part of Major League Baseball's restructuring. Um, she worked on both sides of the aisle, which is something that's rare these days. And yeah. Yeah. Lori, Lori fought for not just baseball. She fought for the memories and the entertainment value of the Merrimack Valley. And that's something that I know she's extremely proud of. And it's not just Lori. It was UMass Lowell. It was the school superintendent, Joel Boyd. It was um, you know, the city manager's office and all the city employees and the fans and the sponsors. Um, you know, it was it was wonderful to see everybody come together, and it wasn't about balls and strikes. It was about heartbeats and uh, how much everybody loves having the organization as part of their community. Absolutely. You know, I'd like you, if you could, Sean, to take us down into the locker room. And, and how did the players in the front office respond to the spinners imminent leaving? And, and what was it like for the players in the, in the front office, you know, as they went through that process? So with the players, you know, as you and I know, we shared an unbelievable joy while also sharing unbelievable heartbreak in Brooklyn, the last out of the 2019 season. Right. Um, for those of you that don't recall, uh, when Campana hit that home run there in the seventh inning for us to go up, what, three to two. Yep. And here we were just a couple innings away from winning the New York Penalty Championship 
Uh, but the Mets had a heck of a ball club. And then we saw it through good baseball. We didn't lose. We got beat. We did not lose. Yep. We got beat. In fact, I would argue that we had, you know, when you had Stephen Scott and then, um, oh, my God, Alex. Uh, oh, my God, his last name's escaping me. Um, Arrow. The last man. Thank you, Alex yeah. Arrow out of yeah. Northwestern. I would argue those were our last – they, they were our two best contact hitters. Yeah. And we had them as our last two at-bats. You couldn't have asked for better guys to have up in that situation. Right. And we got beat. You know, we lost the championship 4-3, to three, and that was heartbreaking. Um, you know, we shed some tears of joy and some tears, tears of sorrow at the same time. But we had no idea COVID was going to happen. And we certainly had no idea contraction was going to happen. Right. So the, player, the players didn't get a chance to experience it um, – the way that our fans did, you know, the players went off and went home and just expected the 2020 season was going to come about and that life would go on for them and they would move away from the world like so many of them do. So we didn't really see much there for the players being shocked after the fact though, I've been contacted by so many players from Kevin Euclid to David Eckstein to, um, you know, Cole Cottom, who's in our system and former managers and coaches and current managers that just talked about what a great experience Lowell was, how much they loved playing in Lowell, and that that they they will always have a special place in their heart. Uh, the front office staff, you know, we got the one-two punch too, you know, with what happened with COVID, um, and then what happened with contraction, and there really wasn't a whole lot you could do, you know, yeah. the the operation didn't disappear because of anything that it did. Um, it wasn't being punished. It was the way that the game is evolving and has evolved. And unfortunately, Lowell fell to the same fate that many other communities did. Um, and I know many, many ball teams have very special relationships in their community. Same thing as, as Lowell certainly has had. Um, it was disappointing. It was heartbreaking. I, I had a very empty feeling for a long time, as I know you did, and um, so many fans did. Um, and it was just, it was a very empty, empty time. Absolutely. And, you know, I'd, I'd like to just expand on that thought uh, for a moment. Uh, I, of course, I was there at MCU Park uh, doing that final game. And uh, when the spinners ultimately lost that game, 4-3, uh, to three, as you mentioned, as I'm walking out of the ballpark, you know, I'm, th I'm going to my car and I'm, I'm saying, you know, we'll get them next year. We'll get them next year. And then all of a sudden, COVID hits and everybody was shut down in 2020. But the real punch to the gut sean was the contraction and you know i'm still heartbroken over over it to this very day yeah yeah i mean i share that with you too um you know lowell was not only important in my life professionally but it's been deeply important to my life personally uh of which i could never repay i i grew up there now i wasn't born and raised there yeah. but i grew up there i matured there it took me a little while to mature for those people that knew me my first go around i was such a perfectionist that I wasn't friendly all the time. I was very challenging to deal with because I demanded perfection from everyone, and certainly myself. Right. Thank God as I got older, I learned that there's other ways to, to treat people, to treat people better and be a better partner and appreciate fans more and look people in the eye and actually care. I tried to care when I was younger. I just didn't know how to care. Yeah. So my second time around, I promised myself, I didn't promise anybody, I promised myself that I was really going to embrace the people of Lowell and the community for what it really is and what it has to offer. And um, my daughters worked four years, you know, those four seasons with me back in Lowell right. to see them grow and mature and take them to functions um, and have the people in the community to, re to respond to those young ladies and now young women. Um, I, I can never repay Lowell. I, there's in, in many ways, Lowell helped save me as a person and I'll forever be thankful. It's always, always a part of my heart and always will be.
That's awesome. Sean, I thought we'd uh, just talk about a few memories. I know I have a few things in mind, and, and I encourage you to share, you know, particular memories that you might have. But uh, uh, let's talk about that 2019 season first. It was such a special season in so many ways, uh, you know, getting to the playoffs and uh, be- beating Batavia in that first round with Joe Davis hitting the walk-off home run. And you mentioned the, the you mentioned the uh, Campania home run in Game 3. I, I really got the sense that that team was a team of destiny in, in – uh, the sense that it turned out to be the final year of the New York Penn League as we know it, but as we look back on that 2019 season, there were so many things that uh, that uh, were memorable, weren't there? Well, what people forget, John, is the month of August was horrible. Right. I don't know how right. many, what, what, did we, what did we win? Six games? Seven games? Something right. like that in the month of August. Right. We, we with all due respect, we played terrible baseball. Yep. But you know, yep. you know who else played terrible baseball? Everyone yeah. played terrible baseball. Right. It was so so crazy. You know, you'll see where, you know, the big club goes in a streak, right? And they win ten or eleven in a row, and then they may lose seven or eight in a row. Like that's part of the game. But to see so many teams do it at the same time, so there were fourteen teams, with the exception of Batavia, fourteen teams, so thirteen, I guess, that were all playing awful baseball. Yeah. And you thought you thought for certain by the second week of April, because we had a good start, we're like, ah, we're done. But Luke Montz, who was our manager, who's now uh, managing double A in San Antonio for the San Diego Padres organization. Right. Monty kept his head about him, as he always does, and was a positive leader for these players every single pitch. Nate Spears, who's now the triple A hitting coach in the Twins organization. Yeah. Um, Spearsy was our hitting coach. And just kept focused as a mentor to these kids, keeping them positive, having them stay on top of the game in a forward thinking manner and not sitting back and thinking about what just transpired or what transpired yesterday. Um, So that focus from the leadership there kept these kids on track. And then as we got closer to the end of the season, we're realizing, holy smokes, we're actually going to make the playoffs. Then we started to play our, then we started to play our best baseball when we needed to play it. And, you know, we just ran into a buzzsaw in Brooklyn. Um, you know, if you remember some of the defensive plays, you could argue and go, oh, well, it's because of a turf field why they made such plays. Yep. No, they made fantastic plays. And I forget the double that went down the line there in the eighth inning. I forgot who hit that, the guy from LSU. You could not have thrown the ball into the corner. Right, there. right. So, yeah. you know, we, we got beat. We got beat. And, um, you, you know, like I, I don't do this for – the love of the balls and strikes. I do it for the love of, of the game overall, but it sure is special to have those baseball memories to look back on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, a couple of other memories that I stick out. Uh, I remember a night back in 2013, it was the 31st of July. The spinners were playing the Auburn double days. Uh, they had a perfect game going into the ninth inning. Uh, and uh, the first batter was retired. And then uh, it was a, uh, uh, Taylor Grover, who was pitching for the spinners, and uh, Bucky Dent's son, Cody Dent, comes up to the plate, and uh, wouldn't you know, he breaks up the perfect game. So there's the there's the Dent family uh, doing it to us again. You know, it's funny because Bucky's Dent, Bucky Dent's name is synonymous with the playoff game in '78. Yeah. But you realize Bucky Dent wasn't the one that won that game for the yeah, yeah Reg, Reggie, Reggie Jackson. Reggie Jackson, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, every, everybody curses. Bucky Dent, but it was a Hall of Famer that hit that home run yeah. that eventually ended up being the game-winning RBIs right. for the Yankees to, right. to, to go on. Um, so I have a couple interesting memories to share with you, and they're 
uh, I bumped into Brian Dahlbach last week. So okay, yep. d- down here in Fort Myers, where we're doing three weeks of fantasy camp that ended last week. And Dahlbach, who's in the Twins organization as well, is with Nate Spears. Um, I chatted with him. I said, you know, hey, we crossed paths when I was in Lowell. You did a rehab assignment. I said, do you remember being there? He goes, remember being there? He rallies off the date, the specific <laughs> date, August, thir- August 31st. I forget what the year was. And he walks me through his experiences there. And I said, how the heck do you remember this? And he said it was a very pivotal moment for him coming back off surgery, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That he just remembers two things about about playing there. He says, number one, the crowd just being crazy yep. and, and, lo- and loving playing in front of that with the fans being so on top of them. And he said, the Frisbee dog. He says, here, I'm trying to throw the ball around the infield, and I couldn't because the Frisbee dog kept circling around my legs. Yeah, Jake, so right? That was, yeah. Yeah. Jake, the Frisbee funny. dog. Yeah. It was funny to hear him say that. And then in a similar memory uh a few years ago when gabe kapler was first named the, the manager of the san francisco giants i'm at winter meetings and i'm in the hotel and i go to get in the elevator door opens up and who's standing there gabe kapler All so right. it's just gabe kapler and me like you know you got to say hello because it's awkward if you don't right yeah so yep. i introduced myself and i said you probably don't remember me but i was the general manager in Lowell, blah 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 and he goes remember lowell he goes i'll never forget lowell and he talked he talked about how he was coming off an injury, how he tore his ACL, and how playing in Lowell was a pivotal moment in his comeback. And he remembered the environment and he remembered how welcoming everybody was. I couldn't get over that. So that's two experiences I'd had where you've got Red Sox guys that have come through there that keep those memories with them. Another one too was and this goes into the Wayback Machine was Brent Saberhagen. Oh wow. So you know so, Cy Young Award winner and saves pitched uh, for Lowell in 97 and again in 2000. Um, he and I are Facebook friends. You know, everybody's Facebook friends, right? But, um, you know, he has two distinctive memories about his time in Lowell. One was at Alumni Field where he came back 22 months after surgery. And then the other was coming back years later to pitch on rehab. And again, remembering the environment and what it was like to play in front of those fans. This is a guy that's won World Series. This is a guy that again, was a Cy Young Award winner, made a lot of money and has seen a lot of baseball in his life, yet he still remembers Lowell. Yeah, I want to talk about rehab assignments uh, absolutely in in a minute or so here. But the other memory, Sean, and I know you'll you'll, uh, remember this uh, because I was just looking at this uh, yesterday. I was going through my old scorebooks, which I've saved every scorebook from every uh, game I've ever done in professional baseball. Uh, There was a game back in uh, 2017. The Tri-City Valley Cats were in town. And the Valley Cats wound up batting out of order in that game. And I, I want to first talk to you. I, I want you to give your perspective of that whole situation, and then I'll give you mine, because it was really surreal that night. It, it was a nightmare. It was an absolute yep. nightmare. So when that happened, so just, just so fans know, if you're going to file a protest, you have to file a protest before the next pitch is thrown. Right. Okay, so you, you know, it's really got to be something egregious that you pick up on right away to be able to file a protest. And odds are when you file a protest, you're not going to win. So it's kind of pointless to file a protest. So the confusion of them batting out of order, and what was his name? Morgan Ensberg, former yes. big leaguer. He was the manager in Tri-City. Yes, correct. So let's just say it was an honest mistake. Let's just say it was an honest mistake. <laughs> they, bat, they bat out of order, and it comes to my attention 
Now, for something to come to my attention during a game that's baseball related, you know something was wrong. Yeah, it's right? serious, right? Because yeah, because yeah, like because I'm intermingling with fans and and talking to uh, you know our staff and and just making sure that we have a great experience to get to our our our, our guests. Right. Yet when this happened, I happened to just be coming out of the back office where the dugout was, and somebody yelled to get my attention. Mm-hmm. So Iggy Suarez, our manager, I hustle into the dugout and I, they said to me, we were pretty sure they batted out of order. So I'm like, okay. And they said, what do we do? And I said, well, the game's already playing now. There's really not much you can do. Right. So it creates, creates all this confusion. So I called to the press box and I kind of took those guys by surprise because I don't think they were paying attention either because they're just doing their job. Yep. So when I questioned them batting out of order, it took them a little while to figure it out. Yeah. Iggy figured it out right away, but you know, we don't have direct communication from the dugout to the press box. It's yep. not the big yep. things. So long story short, we figured out that something happened, but I can't do anything. And to try to convey my thoughts on paper when I wasn't 100% certain what to say was a little intimidating for me right. in this sort of realm. So I called Chaz Scoggins and Chaz long time, he just retired as official score for the Red Sox last year, longtime sports writer from Lowell. Chaz was listening on the radio. Yep. And yep. instead of Chaz walking me through it, Chaz somehow got to the ballpark like immediately. Right. And he he's my recollection is, is he's going through what happened and he's explaining to me that there were multiple rule violations and how this was handled. Absolutely. So yep. so it took me about three innings to draft a letter to the league president. And before I sent that letter off, I wanted to make certain that our farm director was aware and also our manager, everyone was in line with how the situation was being presented. So everyone was in agreement. Um, we all felt passionately that this was not accidental yep. in, what, in what transpired. And we submitted. So keep in mind what I said at the beginning. You have to file a protest before the first pit, before right. the next pitch. Right. right. So we knew we knew we were out of order, but we felt strong enough that we couldn't let this issue go. Absolutely. So we we file it. Um, I don't believe it was handled in the most respectful of manners. However, just ironically, the league president uh, at the time was coming into town the next day, so he was able to address the issue to the Red Sox personnel and me in the clubhouse. But again, he started off by saying, just so you know, this is not a formally filed protest, which I was somewhat reprimanded for that, which I, I, I to me, the issue wasn't about whether or not I filed the protest properly, because, again, has to be done before the next pitch. That yeah. wasn't the issue. Yeah. The issue was we felt we felt that this was an intentional infraction of the rules. Yeah. So I'll, I'll let you pick up from there. Yeah. And uh you say, you know, an intentional uh, violation of the rules. Uh, it was a case of, you know, not just one person batting out of order. It wound up being like the bottom five guys in the order. And then you yeah, had guys. It all trickles down. Yeah, you had, you had guys in the lineup that wound up being allowed to stay in the game when they should have not been in the game. And I, I want to describe <laughs> what it was like, Sean, on the radio trying to communicate to our audience what's going on because I don't even know what's going on at this point. All right, I'm, I'm saying, guys, we have a lineup. We, we were given the lineup prior to the game, and the, what's happening on the field is not corresponding to the lineup that we have. And I had to, I had to kind of uh, 
go roll with the punches here and try to figure out what was going on, but I don't think I ever did. You know, because no, it no. was it was that complicated of a situation. Yeah, and when people hearing this wonder, like, how can you not figure it out? It's not like Little League where you figure out one kid bat him out of order. So when one person bats out of order and then the next person bats, it's a domino effect, right? So right. it's multiple infractions of that rule. And then what happened afterwards, and most people don't know this, we then played them again a few days later in Tri-City. Right, right. And, more, and their manager did the same exact thing, did the oh. same exact thing. And our manager hustled over to him and said, you realize you did this again? And like he said it, he said it in between, like in between innings, he said, you realize you did it again. And allegedly their manager said nothing, but just looked at our manager and our manager said, I'm just going to let it go. Cause it was such a fiasco last time. It was. So when I say, when I say that we believe it was intentional, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. And like, it's a ball. Like, what are, what are we doing? Right. You know? That's, that, that's what I couldn't figure out. I was like, why are we intentionally trying to get an edge? And uh, yeah, twice. <laughs> yeah. And if I recall, both the manager, Iggy Suarez and the pitching coach, Lance Carter, were ejected from that game because they they brought it up to the umpires. I believe it was in the eighth inning. And, you know, if you talk to I talked to Chaz, Chaz Scoggins about it. Chaz is also the uh, official spinners historian. And he just said it was so botched by the umpires from the beginning. And it was just like like you said, Sean, it was a disaster. So was it Lance that was ejected, or was it Nate Spears, our uh, hitting coach? Yeah. Uh, well, Ch- Chaz and I talked a little bit about it on Facebook. He seems to think it was Lance, but you might have a clearer memory of it. Yeah, it could have been Nate. It could have been Nate now that I, I think I'm, about I, it. I'm thinking it was Nate because Nate is mild-mannered, always a smile on his face. Yeah. And unless I'm getting my ejections confused, I could have sworn Nate like threw his clipboard down and yelled something and – Oh, you know something? I'm thinking of a different time. My apologies. You're right. You're right. You're right. It was Lance Carter because Lance said to the umpire, he goes, all right, tough guy. That's all he said. Yes. Yes. He says, all right, right. tough guy. And he ran him out. Yeah, because I remember writing that now. Yeah, it was Lance. Yeah. So they tossed Iggy. And then Lance, who does not have a temper at all, very mild manner, very like monotone voice. The umpire came over and was yelling for our dugout to calm down. And yeah, because I was standing right there, and Lance goes, "All right, tough guy." That's all yeah. he says. And the guy, the guy runs Lance off for calling him a tough guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the, the the tempers were flaring that night, but uh, I don't I don't think I've never seen anything like it, and I probably never will again. But that was, uh, I know that's something that, that you probably hadn't seen either. Yeah, yeah, no, that was that was one of those crazy nights where, like, deep down, you're saying to yourself, like, "Really, guys? Yeah, like, this is what we're doing. Are we really doing this?" But then you also have to think about the integrity of the game, too. And I know you're sure. saying a lot. Sure. But these people that are playing and coaching and managing and umpiring, like this is their career. This is mm-hmm. important to them. Um, and just imagine like in a work environment, if you had a coworker sabotage you doing a project mm-hmm. and, it, and it affects your productivity or how you're viewed by your superiors, um, you're going to care. And they certainly cared that night. Absolutely. We're talking with Sean Smith. He is the former longtime general manager of the Lowell Spinners. He's now the GM for Florida Operations at JetBlue Park. We're going to get to that very shortly. Uh, Sean, uh, there were some great rehab assignments that uh, happened in Lowell over the years. I remember Rick Porcello was there one particular day. I talked to Mookie Betts also in the visiting clubhouse at Hudson Valley. Just talk, if you could, for a minute or two about uh, how special that was to see these Red Sox players doing rehabs there and how great it was for the fans. 
Yeah, I mean, it was electric. So not only the guys that participated in games, but those that came in during the day that people didn't know about. So, um, you know, we had Stephen Wright, the knuckleballer. He came and threw a couple simulated outings for us in Lowell uh, underneath the stadium in the pitching tunnel when people didn't even know he was there. Yeah. Um, which was neat to be able to see a big leaguer uh, throw his knuckleball. I'm surprised at how how fast he threw the knuckleball. Yeah. I went to watch because, like, how often are you going to get to watch a, a major league knuckleball from literally feet away? Right. So right. I, wa- I walked – I actually stood behind our catcher. Of course, there was a net in between us. I'm not insane. Um, I stood behind our catcher to watch what that knuckleball was like. So I, like, wish fans – you know, we weren't allowed to – take that or show it because no one knew that Steven was there but like that'd be so neat to be able to show what that's like you know there's a, a video online of Tim Wakefield like him throwing his knuckleball when he was with the Pirates yeah. against the Braves in the NLCS where the ball didn't even rotate and to see that and experience that in real life is is really mysterious to watch um, but then you know the, the big guys that played on the field you know we had dozens of rehab guys um, but in one very special memory that I just recounted the other day with Pedro Martinez, so I was in Boston, excuse me, I was in Springfield for Boston uh, Winter Weekend, and that's a day and a half fan fest where there's all sorts of activities, baseball-related activities and um, um, autograph sessions, photo sessions with players and, and, and former players. So Pedro was there, and I was back of house, and I walked up to him, shook his hand. I said, let me take it for a walk down memory lane. And there were two specific things that I shared with him. I said, Ramon Martinez, so his brother, older brother Ramon, who also pitched for the Dodgers, that's where he made it. I think he was rookie of, rookie of the year. Right. Um, so Ramon was coming on rehab. You know, he had had surgery. Pedro shows up at the game along with Pedro's parents. And Pedro remembered how crazy and insane that game was that night. And he talked about that. But even then, more importantly, there was a game where Pedro shows up by himself on an off day while the Red Sox are at home, they had a rare off day at home. Okay. <clears throat> and and this was in my first thing. And Pedro remembered this, which I thought was funny. He remembered this because we wouldn't let him in the ballpark. So I'm up in the concourse, and someone at the front gate says, Sean, there's someone up here that needs to see you. He claims he's Pedro Martinez. <laughs> so I instantly, I, I, I instantly think it's a joke, right? Like, right. There's no way Pedro Martinez is there. So I'm like laughing on the radio. I'm like, ha ha, I'll be down in a minute. And I walk down the steps and who's at the front gate? Pedro Martinez. Wow. So wow. it was like third, third inning of the game. So there's nobody out front except the police officers and Pedro. Wow. So I come down there and, I, and he goes, Sean, they won't let me in. So it's funny. Pedro remembered that because he's like, I got to be honest with you. I never go anyplace where they won't let me in. Right. And he said, that's the only, only time in my career I haven't been let into a ballpark. So he was laughing. I remember. But then he said to me, he goes, that's not the first time I've done that. Wow. He told me two other, he told me two other stories. He said, when Carlos Pena was playing at Northeastern, he went over and snuck into the game at Northeastern and no one knew he was there Wow. until, until Carlos Pena hit a home run and he went up to like, say hello to him at the fence and then all of a sudden, everybody realized it was Pedro Martinez, and then he had to get out of there. Yeah, and sure. He had nobody with him. He yep. had nobody with him, just by himself. Yep. And then he told me, too, when he got traded from Montreal to Boston, he went up on a Boston off day, flew up to Montreal to see his teammates, and he sat in the sat behind the plate in the stands. No one recognized him wow. until, the camera, until the camera guy saw him late in the game. And then the fans started to come around him. Right. He said that no one recognized him in Lowell because I remember walking in the concourse. No one even looked twice at him. He said no one recognized him in any of those three locations because it didn't make sense to, to the fans. Because why would Pedro Martinez 
be here at a game when Paige Martinez is probably up working somewhere. Wow. So he, he so he remembers Lowell very vividly for both those reasons. Wow. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, mention one of the um, iconic personalities who uh, was in Lowell. That's uh, Dogman, who uh, yeah. was down in uh, – he did everything for the spinners. Uh, uh, maybe you could introduce our, our audience to uh, Dogman and maybe re- relate one of your favorite stories about him. So the dog man, his real name is Adelbert Christman or Del Christman, born and raised in Lowell. Del uh, was an original member of the organization from 1996. Many people know him as our hot dog vendor that would bark um, and yell, we got him, we got him. And he had all different kinds of names for his hot dogs. <laughs> uh, he had the, you know, the, the bloodhound, which had the ketchup on it, the mongrel, which had a little bit of everything on it, the golden retriever, which had mustard on it. And the kids absolutely loved him. He'd have baseball cards in his pocket that he gave out to the kids. Um, he became iconic with the ball club, and I felt like the best representation for what it means to love the game of baseball. And then after a few years of doing that, I guess starting in 2000, um, he started to pull double duty. So Dell was working as our clubhouse manager, too, along with selling hot dogs. And that started a 20-year relationship with the Boston Red Sox, where, wow. where Dell started to come down to Fort Myers and work as a clubhouse attendant from spring training all the way up until the Lowell season started. And then he would go back down for instructional league in the, in the fall. Mm-hmm. And Dell, Dell retired this past year, which is a shame because he misses the game. And, and he and I would have had the chance to work together again down here in, in Florida. Yep. And I, I, I love Dell with all my heart. He's a wonderful, wonderful man. Uh, one of the most caring, loving people I've ever met, and uh, I'm proud to call him a friend. Indeed, there were some great memories. Uh, like you said, he always had a smile on his face, and uh, I always would go down and grab lineups before the game, and we had some great conversations over the years. So uh, he will be indelibly associated with Lowell forever, without without question. Yeah. Uh, yes, sir. Sean, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit before we wrap up here about your new position. You are down in Florida as we speak. You're the GM uh, for the Red Sox in terms of the Florida operations and uh, JetBlue Park. Uh, You'll manage all the community facility and event operations down there. Tell us about that job, how it uh, came uh, to be, and uh, how thrilled you are to remain in the Red Sox organization. Well, I'm excited and honored. And tomorrow starts the first day of my third week, so I'm still Brand new. I, I may be a little long in the tooth, right? But you're never you're never too old to learn. And this is an exciting thing to be a part of for um, the Boston Red Sox in helping serve our community, helping serve our baseball operations, um, and helping serve um, the fans that come through here from all across the country. You know, we've already sold out a couple games for spring training. Uh, I was over at the Twins Complex today, which is just six miles down the road, getting to know the Twins. And look, we may be competitors on the field. But we're not competitors in the business sense down here. We're not competitors in the community. We're teammates. So it's exciting for me to to broaden this part of my career to be partners with another big league organization literally down the street. Yeah. Um, they're great guys, and we'll collaborate on a lot of community initiatives together. Um, and, and to be able to have this job that is something I've dreamt about for years and years, this has been many years of making, um, is is a blessing, and I'm thankful for the opportunities in my career that have gotten me uh, the skill set to to be a good person, a good enough person, and a talented enough person that the Red Sox had thought enough of me um, to be able to give me this opportunity. 
Uh, this is where my family and I want to be, and we just thank God that, that this has been able to manifest itself. Absolutely. Now, I have to ask you, you know, um, they had the, the hurricane go through there uh, last year. How How is that area doing? Have they rebuilt? And, you know, how's, how's it all going down there? So Southwest Florida is open for business, let me tell you. Um, the Fort Myers Beach is still devastated. It's going to take a long time for that to recover. Uh, however, all the hotels are open. All the restaurants are open down here. Um, this place is coming back to life. Traffic is crazy, right? You've okay. got so many people down here, all your snowbirds down here. Um, there are so many people um, getting back to normal down here. Uh, we're selling tickets like crazy. I think we've renewed at over 85% of our season tickets Great. now with a couple weeks left in our renewal process. Um, so it's alive and well and happening here. So even though it's going to take a long time for everything to ultimately recover and economically, you can't replace a lot of those dollars that were lost as a result of the hurricane. But we're we're fortunate that things are, are on the move uh, and the recovery is, is going as quickly as humanly possible. As far as the facility goes, we had some damage here, uh, nothing that affects anything for the fans, um, nothing that affects our ability to play baseball. Uh, but our partnership here with Lee County, the, the Lee County owns the stadium. And we have a very unique partnership here where uh, the men and women that help take care of this place do a first-class, top-notch job day in, day out. And it's a very unique relationship that enables us to partner together uh, to help serve the community and the Red Sox in the best way possible. So we've still got a few weeks before pitchers and catchers report. So, um, you know, as I've learned in all my years, uh, one week can seem like an eternity in getting things done. And uh, some days that feels like there's actually more than 24 hours in a day because you can accomplish a lot in 24 hours to get things ready. But we'll be ready well in advance of, of uh, by the time pitchers and catchers report. Well, I got to say, if you ever consider having any kind of Jimmy Buffett promotions and you need a ukulele player, I hope that you will consider <laughs> uh, what I can bring to the table. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. You know, we're we're working on some concerts to happen here, and we want to make this more of a a year-round opportunity for people to come and enjoy. The county has, I'm sure you're probably familiar with the Perfect Game, which is a national organization for youth baseball. Yep. Um, they have a very big presence here for many of the months um, throughout the calendar. Now, keep in mind that it's not just spring training that happens here. We have the Florida Complex League. So we have uh, roughly 65 to 80 players that are here in the regular baseball months that train and work out and play games. So, you know, we'll play the Braves, we'll play the Pirates and we'll play um, uh, Tampa Bay. And there's like four or five different teams that we play consistently. And those games happen around noon. They played here in the big stadium that holds 10,000 people. Um, and we play earlier in the day just because of the heat, right? And it always rains every time, I guess between three and 3.15 every day, it rains like it's a torrential downpour, then it's gorgeous for the rest of the night. So we don't play any night games during the summer. Um, but there's still plenty of baseball to be played here. We had a circus in our parking lot, like literally a circus last week. Uh, there's a car show coming up. Um, uh, there's a concert coming up. We're working on a big concert inside the stadium, which has never been done here. So, you know, Fenway Sports Management Group owns all the properties. So we have the benefit of working with the talented people at Fenway that put the concerts on so to have their expertise in helping us plan these sorts of things. So, Hopefully, we'll have something uh, pretty monumental to announce here if things work out in the upcoming weeks.
The Red Sox uh, preseason opener will be February 25th against the Atlanta Braves down in Fort Myers. If you're at the ballpark, please uh, look for Sean Smith. He is one of the best that the business has to offer. Sean, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. It was wonderful to reconnect. I know our audience is going to really enjoy it. And uh, I always root for you, my friend. Best of luck down there, and and hopefully we'll catch up uh, down the road soon. Thank you, sir. Please come see me. Life's not the same without you. Thank you, Sean. We truly appreciate it. You've been listening to Airing It Out Files from Leahy's Broadcast Booth. We'll have another episode for you next week. Thanks so much for tuning in. Mitochondrial disease is a rare multi-symptom disease characterized by breakdowns in the mitochondria which are specialized compartments that are present in every cell of the body except red blood cells and are responsible for creating more than 90% of the energy needed by the body to sustain life and support growth. A disease most commonly associated with children, currently there is no cure, just management of symptoms. Hugs for Mito Inc. is mitochondrial disease, rare disease advocacy, awareness, fundraising for research trials, and hopefully a cure. To learn more, please visit hugsformito.org.